Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteiner Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Everybody and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. We've got some great guests on the line a little bit later. We've got a guest in the studio. We're going to be talking about volcanoes. We're going to be talking about all cool stuff. And in the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning, sir. Good morning. It's great to uh, see you, buddy. It's, it's been a oh, it's been a month. <laughs> it has been a month. It goes fast, but it's nice to be hanging out all together again. Yeah, I think so. And uh, Dr. Jen, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm so excited. It's a lovely, cold, rainy day, and we're in a beautiful, warm studio hanging out, talking science. It doesn't get better than that. I tell you what, if I wasn't here, you know where I'd be? Lake, Ma- Lake Mountain. Yeah, oh, a lot There's of heaps snow. of snow up there. Yeah, yeah. I, saw, I saw some pictures of Donna yeah. Buang. There's a decent, decent dump up there. I could be up there tomorrow. Yeah. I don't know. We'll yeah. see. I've got to do Can we have an excursion? Can we have a class excursion to the snow, please, so we can have a I'm snowball fight? Go, go. Snowball fight, exactly. Oh. Let's do it. You know, I've got this contra- contraption that I bought once with my kids. It's like a – the best way to describe it is it's like a giant ice cream ice cream scooper. Oh. Yeah. And it's used to make snow, round snowballs. And But they're they're a little oversized. <laughs> do they hurt when yeah, they hit? They hurt. <laughs> I just, it really packs them in. Yeah. Anyway, great, uh, great weather and stuff, and a good start to the season up there. For um, you know, there's been. I have to say, I was worried that there would be no snow on Lake Mountain ever again a couple of years ago because yeah. it really changing climate. Anyway, all happening. Uh, we're going to start off with some news, Doctor Ewan. Over to you. I'm going to talk about a little critter that lives way up on the top of uh, some of the tallest trees in the world. So redwood trees, the tallest non-flowering plants in the world, and it's the wandering salamander. And Ooh. So we don't have salamanders in Australia. We don't have any native ones. We have some introduced newts now, unfortunately, in, in Victoria, but we don't have any native salamanders. And this wonderful little amphibian lives, you know, 100 metres plus, so super high trees, and it sits there munching invertebrates most of the time. But you can imagine when you're living in the top of a really tall tree, sometimes it gets windy, and then you're like, what do I do? Do I just, like, hope for the best, or do I jump? And then what do you do? do you, you might go splat at the bottom. Right, yeah. And so biologists, you know, as they do, thought, well, how do, they, how do these salamanders deal with this? And what do you do? You put salamanders in a wind tunnel, of course. <laughs> and... <laughs> I hope they had the salamanders' permission to yeah. do Look, that. I'm sure they had a written note from their parents <laughs> saying it was all fine. Um, and so this salamander, which has no webbing, it has no sort of obvious features that you might think, okay, it knows how to glide. They studied what it does. And essentially it does what a parachutist would do. It spreads its limbs out. Hmm. And it uses its its uh, limbs to basically modify its flight. And they did forty five tests, and in forty five occasions, it controlled its descent. Other wow. salamanders of different species did not control their descent so well. <laughs> and it went splat. They didn't go splat, but they didn't fly particularly well. Um, no, no salamanders were harmed in this experiment, as far as I know. Um, and another, beyond being in the another, wind tunnel. Another salamander called the arboreal <laughs> salamander also performed quite well, but not 100% successful. Can I just check? The salamanders that weren't able to control their descent, is that just because they haven't they have evolved to do it? You know, Do they not live in that's, trees? Because a lot of salamanders live on the ground, that's right? That's the theory. So basically, you know, as we know with evolution and natural selection, Natural selection is, is essentially a filter. You do something yeah. wrong, you die, you don't pass on your genes. Yep. So if you fall out of the tree and you don't know what to do, you go splat, 
you know, you don't reproduce. Yep. So they, they think that, that exactly what you say, Jen, that some salamanders have evolved this ability, and I guess if you live in the top of a tree, it's pretty handy, and others have not. Um, and there are frogs in other parts of the world um, that do this, gliding frogs as gliding reptiles. But this is the first time, as far as I know, that they've really worked it out in salamanders. Um, I, I just think it's a fantastic story. It sort of brings in ideas about engineering mm. and the idea of just biologists putting a whole bunch of salamanders in a wind tunnel to, to see how they fly. I, I just think it's really fascinating. So, so you mentioned fly. Um, glide. What about, glide. What about land? <laughs> well, so what they think happens, what they actually think happens is they don't glide all the way to the bottom. So if oh, you imagine okay. you're on a tree and it's 100 <clears throat> yep. metres, if you glide to the bottom as a tiny little salamander, you've got to get to the top again. Yeah. That's, a, that's a pain in the backside, you know, trying to waddle all the way back to the top again. So what they think probably happens is they get knocked out of the tree <laughs> and because they've got this ability to glide but also to be directional, they glide back onto the trunk again oh, right. and go yep. back up. So um, obviously more work would be required to work that out. But, yeah, you're right. So interesting. So presumably we'd expect over time, if that's a strong enough selective pressure, that they will evolve some web- webbing eventually between toes or, you know, kind of armpits or, you well, know, that could happen over time. Maybe they don't need it. You know, I mean, yeah, if, they, if you're successful enough, you know, 45 out of 45, you get it right and you hit the trunk again and you go yep. back up, yeah, job true. done. Yep. So. It's the trunk stickers that are uh, yep. that are breeding. Yeah, their genes exactly. are being yeah, passed once on. Once they go to the bottom, it goes splat. Game yeah. over. If you can't grab onto that trunk, <laughs> do not expect your genes to be passed on. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Amazing little critters. They um, are. I, I love the fact someone actually noticed this yeah, at some I know, stage. Right? You know, like you're looking up. It's a windy day. Weird things that biologists do, right? So. Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> Dr. Jim, what do you got for us? Well, I came across another animal story this week that I couldn't resist. I don't generally come and do animal stories, but this week I couldn't resist because anyone who's ever studied biology has obviously learned a lot about evolution. Mm. And anyone who's ever studied evolution has learned about the Galapagos Islands because, you know, famed story of uh, Charles Darwin spending time there and noticing species that were very, very similar to one another yet distinctly different living on these different islands. Mm. And that's famed to be part of his... uh, perception i guess of this idea of evolution so um made very famous by his trip there during um his voyage with the hms beagle and the two most famous groups of animals were the finches and the giant tortoises and we all heard of course about lonesome george from pinter island the last known individual of his subspecies and he was known as the rarest animal on earth um, until he died in 2012 but there's actually 13 different species of giant tortoise in the galapagos Hmm. um, and one of them which occurred on the westernmost island in the Galapagos, which is called Fernandina Island. This particular species of giant tortoise was only ever known from one specimen, which was right. collected in 1906, and it had been assumed to be extinct from then. So someone found one specimen never seen again. Hmm. Now, it turns out that this particular island, it's an active volcano, It's uninhabited. It's extremely difficult to access. So, you know, maybe there were tortoises still there, but we'd just never known about them. But no evidence for over 100 years. Then in 2019, huge excitement, researchers found one individual female living on this island. Wow. But she didn't look like the male specimen that's now in a museum. So he had this kind of very particular shell that they sort of describe as looking like a saddleback. And she didn't have that. So they said, well, look, she's probably not from the same species 
then because although tortoises can't swim, they can float and they do move from island to island in storms. Mm. You know, occasionally mm. people might actually transport them. You don't yep. know what strange things people get up to. So they said, look, it's probably most likely that she's just a random tortoise from somewhere else that's ended up on this island. But this week they published the results of the genetic study. They went and sequenced her genome based on a blood sample and went back to the male specimen, Got um, were able to sequence DNA from a bone, I think, from the male specimen wow. that's in a museum, compared it to all of the other species of giant tortoise that are still there. And it turns out she is a proper Fernandina Island tortoise. She matches this original male. So this species that everyone thought had been um, extinct <coughs> really close matched the male. And they wonder if just because there's not very much to eat there, because, yep. um, you know, active lava, you yeah, know, active yeah. volcano, lava flows, not a lot of vegetation. Maybe she's just kind of been a bit stunted and that's why she doesn't look. Or maybe that was just a male thing, this very particular, yeah. you know, shell. That was a male thing and females never have it. Um, and they've gone back now and they've found evidence. They've found some tortoise poo on the island. So they're really hopeful that maybe with more work, um, maybe the species has existed in just really low numbers. So, of course, this one particular female who's been nicknamed Fernanda because of where she's from, <laughs> okay. she, they reckon yep. she's about 50, but she could live to 200. So yeah. they reckon hopefully 150 years might be enough time to try and find a mate and potentially this species, you know, not going completely extinct. Jeez. But I don't know. I just love this idea. We'd written it off. We decided it was extinct. We found this one tortoise. I mean, it doesn't really solve any problems in terms of the bigger picture of species going extinct. But just as one little good news story, I kind of like it. And the fact we now have the technology, we can sequence her genome relatively easily and say, yeah, no, she belongs with him. She's not from some other random island. It's funny. After 30 years, I still learn something new almost every time we do the show. And I didn't know that tortoises could float. Yeah, because uh, yeah. they appear heavy. they appear very heavy. Yeah, and it's quite small limbs as well. Yeah. So they're not what you think of as great swimmers. I wonder are they on their back? Are they on their back when they're floating around? No, they're def- definitely right way up. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's cool stuff. But I always wonder what is what is it what does a Galapagos tortoise do when a volcano erupts? Because they can't, they can't move, can't move very fast. Yeah, and they're not great swimmers. Yeah, so yeah. you must think, yeah, has she witnessed some of her mates? Oh, that lava! Yeah, you know, like not good. I wonder what she's seen. <laughs> Can't yeah. be an easy place to live, that's all <laughs> oh, I'll say. Well, I'll tell you, uh, it's something interesting that uh, I noticed yesterday, you know, we've, with great excitement at the end of last year, we announced, of course, the launching of the James Webb Space Telescope. Yeah. Yep. And it is now in the Lagrange point, well beyond the moon, you know, out of reach, as I say. You know, you can't, not like Hubble. We could send up a couple of space shuttles and a few good, few good people to, to do some repairs. This thing is well out of reach, so it's on its own, although, obviously, you know, remote yep. control. Um, but would it surprise you to know that it's already had, uh, up until just recently, four micromedia write hits? And this was in known how, in how much time, Shane? Four uh, in what in, a, in of a few time? months, you know. So, okay. and it was known that this would happen. I mean, any space spacecraft will get these. They're very small, but they can do damage and they can be problematic. Yeah. Of course, um, the James Webb is not small. It's no, bloody huge. It's huge, and even just the mirror itself is over six meters wide. So, this is a, a in a, in a sense like a big captured device for micrometeorites mm. and so there's always a concern that there'll be some hits now the the cool thing though about the designers is that they actually made sure that it was designed to have some redundancy so that mm. it could get hit yep. a few times and um it's interesting because the fifth one just hit over the last week this was a bit bigger than they, they thought yeah a little bit bigger <laughs> it did a little bit of damage um but not 
to a degree that's problematic. So the, the, everything's still functional. Damage one of the mirrors, um, but what they can do, the engineers are very smart in the way they do this, but they can actually move the mirrors to sort of orient them so that the bit of damage doesn't affect the imaging. Oh, that's cool. So, which is really cool. So, and this is all in the design um, works. The other, th- I mean, there's some other things about this that are just so cool to me. The mirrors were kept cleaner than needed when they're on Earth, to give a little bit of extra sort of oomph to them yep. in case this stuff sort of started happening. So it can take a fair few of these hits before it actually even goes below what the anticipated yeah, or wow. hoped expectations are. So the, the James Webb Telescope is actually performing much better than, you know, it was originally sort of what was designed to perform better than was needed, I guess is the way to put it. And so a few of these hits are, are going to be um, going to be standard. And, of course, there are some meteor showers that we know of that we see here on Earth. They're going to affect the James Webb as well. Yeah, of course. But, but engineers can move it at that point yeah. or, or orient it so that it's less at risk. The mirrors are less um, at risk of those meteor showers. So, How far away are we from self-healing mirrors? You know, <coughs> just picturing this mirror that can just go, oh, well, I've been broken. I'll just, you know, move my little uh, molecules around and it'll be all good. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, in reality, we're a little bit off that, especially when you're in the icy cold environment yeah. of space, which is a problem <laughs> because many of the materials that we use for that sort of like self-healing concretes, all these yep. things require air and, and heat mm. to, to work. But, I mean, the, the thing that's so amazing about the, the web and its design is that everything seems to have been designed with a degree of redundancy so that even if there are some things that go wrong, it can still be and will be the most spectacular, you know, imaging device we've ever seen, essentially. Do, do, we, do we have sort of data on, I'm sure you must, of sort of how often kit gets hit? Because I've never thought about this, but it must be really frustrating as an engineer, right? You've built this amazing yeah. satellite or a telescope, you whack it up and then boom, like, yep. <laughs> straight yep. up there, it's just obliterated, right? Like, yeah. How often does this happen? Well, and, and, and in fact, this is this is something that they know a real lot about. So, mm. and and this telescope will tell them more for this location mm. of which we don't have live data because we haven't put stuff there before. But we do know this stuff, and in fact, the the very way in which they've designed the Webb telescope is to compensate for what is known to be the expected sort of yeah. hit rate of these yeah. micrometeorites. And, you know, it's similar for the space station. It's similar for any sort of craft that we put out in, in orbit or beyond. And so, you know, space is a hostile environment, yeah. very hostile, and we just have to be ready. And as an ignorant person, you say micrometeorites, but what about bigger things? I mean, how, how sort of common are they? So I have no concept of these yeah. things. but much, much less common. And, of course, you know, there's always a chance of something very significant. But if you think about something enormous like the International Space Station, which, yep. is, which is enormous, yep. it hasn't had a, a catastrophic strike of that yep. type since yep. it's been there. But, you know, we see them on Earth on occasion, yep. so they do happen. Absolutely. Um, and yep. you just have to make sure that you're, yep. you're ready for that if, if it does occur. But, yep. you know, in all the years of the space shuttles, yep. or, you know, we're, we're We've done pretty well. So, so um, but, but this one is great. I mean, just the idea that it's compensating for these problems, I think, is fabulous. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, um, we're going to take a break for some uh, important station announcements, folks. And when we come back, um, we'll be speaking to our first guest on Zoom. Uh, not in the studio, but uh, still good. Uh, all, all fun and, and games. Uh, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3RRR. On the line with us now is Dr. Hashini Saratni. And Hashini is from the CSR up in Queensland and also from Monash University. Hashini, can you hear me? 
Yes. Hi, Dr. Shen. Thanks for having me and nice to meet you. It's great to meet you and great to have you on the show. Um, now, we, we got an amazing press release from some of the work you were doing here in Monash before you, you moved to Queensland, I think, in the interim while we were trying to organize this, um, yes. this meeting. Where, where are you based now? Just tell us where you are now at CSR up there. I'm connecting from Brisbane, uh, so I'm attached to Robotics and Autonomous Systems Group at CSIRO, but like I'm also collaborating uh, with Inclusive Technology Group at Monash University. Yeah, so this is something I didn't even know this was there at, at Monash. It's something that I think we should be talking a lot more about. Um, technology is something that you know some of us take for granted in terms of our ability to engage with it, and I, I'm certainly one of those people. I take for granted the fact that it's it's designed for me, someone who has you know certain capabilities, and yet there's a lot of people for whom I'm you know I'm sure our various forms of technology are not easy to engage with. Tell us a bit about what you see in that area and what those problems might be. Yes, uh, so we are particularly interested about uh, bringing STEM knowledge, science, technology, uh, engineering, and mathematics knowledge. Uh, what we have seen is like it has been uh, supporting a lot in classrooms to improve the autonomy of uh, children, confidence, creative thinking of children, and also like improving the mental health. But like when it uh, comes to STEM education for marginalized uh, communities like people with intellectual disabilities, there hasn't been much work done in that area. So what we are trying to do is like making uh, the computational toolkits like electronics educational toolkits more accessible for people with intellectual disabilities and Mm potentially other disabilities. Yeah, very interesting. And, and you've come up with these things called tronic boards. What, what are these? What do they do? Yes, uh, tronic boards is a toolkit that we designed uh, with a range of custom-designed printed circuit boards. Uh, so the uniqueness of this toolkit is that we designed it to have several accessibility features, for example, like large 3D printed uh, knobs, so they can be easily controlled by uh, those who are having motor disabilities. And then uh, they also include uh, several large meaningful symbols to define what is a uh, light emitting diode is, what its uh, direct uh, current motor is. But what we use there is like uh, very simple symbols like bulbs, fans, so then they can be easily understandable. And then we also like uh, for this toolkit, like uh, it has uh, three kind of uh, circuit board uh, designs like power boards where we have battery and USB power kind of components and action boards where we have light outputs, vibration outputs, music outputs and fans and sensors like uh, push buttons uh, and light sensors, uh, touch sensors. So uh, we color-coded them by following a traffic light analogy. So uh, um, it can be easily recognized in which order these boards can be connected. So like what we experience is like uh, by doing some experiments with people with intellectual disabilities, they could create uh, surprisingly five to 10 circuits uh, within 20 minutes or one hour session. So which was 
quite amazing. Mm. It, it's interesting to me because often circuit boards and things, when you when you first look at them, if you haven't done that stuff before, they look complicated and they look, you know, yes. <laughs> very difficult to engage with. And and I remember, you know, experiencing some of these things you know, without any of these difficulties myself. And, you know, there's sort of a threshold over which you get where it becomes really enjoyable. I mean, when, when you're working yes. with some of the, I assume these are um, high school kids or what sort of age group, and presumably kids must really get engaged with them once they get over those initial hurdles. Yes. Uh, so the experiments that, that we ran with, uh, so we took these boards uh, to the disability support services and uh, we experiment with uh, adult uh, people with intellectual disabilities uh, aged from 19 to 65 years old uh, and um, like uh, the like as you said Shane like yeah uh, you're absolutely right so when it comes to making circuits like you need to know each and everything, like what is uh, the plus and minus ends mm. of a particular uh, circuit item. So like and the, in uh, the normal uh, tiny, small uh, circuit items, the, these are not obvious. And like you need to have a prior knowledge about them, what they are doing, what are their functionality, and like uh, some basic electronics knowledge, like uh, what are the circuit structures there are circuit structures like parallel series and you need to have all this knowledge but like mm. what we try to do is like uh, we try to reduce the complexity and from a high level design we try to uh, make them more closer uh, like more understandable and recognizable um, easily through our design so yeah i think like what we saw a lot of successes in building these uh, circuitous, circuits because uh, we saw outcomes within few minutes. Uh, mm, yeah. But uh, also, like, we had certain accessories. Like, for example, we had a 3D-printed custom-built uh, stand uh, which was presented with this uh, toolkit. And eventually, uh, this... Um, our participant used that to stabilize the boards uh, so they could show more agency without asking us to uh, like hold the boards while they are connecting uh, the boards using the mm. banana plugs, crocodile clips or conductive tape or uh, conductive threads. Uh, but they used those kind of accessories uh, to build more agency around making circuits so i think yeah. that that's the important learning that we learn okay we need to provide more accessible accessories with this kind of toolkits yeah yeah i oh, know it's, it's very cool stuff and shini in some of what you described i can imagine there are still restrictions for people who have um, any sort of visual impairments uh is yes. there a plan to move into that space as well yes of course so uh we are currently co-designing uh um, with people with uh, visual and low vision impairments. Uh, so, like, part of that is, like, integrating uh, Braille labels into the toolkit and also, like, uh, provide more templates. So, uh, uh, and as actually uh, tactile properties in the mm. toolkit so the people with vision impairments uh, can easily build circuits by their own so we have a very much focus around the agency 
and actually we have trialed um, mm. with some uh, people with vision impairments and so far we are seeing a lot of improvements but like we are keeping to improve in that area Mm, very cool. Ashini, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck on your new invent- uh, adventures, inventions, adventures up there at CSIRO in Brisbane. Uh, no doubt uh, some cool work, and I'm glad to hear that you're still connected with the Tronic Boards program down at Monash. Um, thanks so much for chatting on Einstein and Gogo. Thanks a lot for having me, Shane. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Folks, that was Dr. Hashini Siriatni, um, who's now a postdoctoral research fellow at CSIRO up in Brisbane. We're going to take a break for some music, and when we come back, we'll be talking about volcanoes, and there's a pretty good chance I'll get excited. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. It's just after 11.31 on this fine Sunday in the studio with us now is Dr. Laura Miller. Laura is a geochemist from Monash University. Welcome to Triple R, Laura. Hello. It's great for having me. Oh, it's great to have you in the studio. You know, we have a lot of people on Zoom these days, and it's nice to actually have people in the studio in the flesh, which is good. Um, you know, we, we put you through our Triple R sanitizing bath before you came in, of course, to make sure. You <laughs> no COVID. <laughs> it's, you've got to be in there for two hours. Um, that's what we do. But... Uh, now, you work in the area of volcanoes, which is, is pretty exciting. I was also excited because my, um, my in-laws live in Hawaii. So, wow. you know, and, and, and I will say, did have a trip planned there with some volcanic exploration <laughs> so until this I. damn pandemic <laughs> hit. Exactly the, same. Exactly the same. I think next week I've got to ring up uh, Jetstar and say, hey, can you extend those tickets? To, you know, because <laughs> uh, they're about to expire. So, you know, like we've, we've all been unable to go and see this. But how, I mean, just before we get on to your specific work as a geochemist, how many volcanoes, active volcanoes are there in Hawaii? I mean, Hawaii exists, I suppose, because of these things, right? Yeah, a, absolutely. As a location. I mean, it's an island because of volcanoes. Cause yeah. They're just completely built out of basalts. Yeah. Erupted by the volcanoes, yeah. And, and, and like, what, are we talking about a few or tens or hundreds? How many sort of active volcanoes are there in, the, in that region? Actually active, probably only three or four. Right. But there are lots of dormant ones that were part of the Hawaiian chain previously that were right. active. And those form the like, older Hawaiian islands. Yeah. And when you, when you talk about active, just for all the, the people out there listening... Because geological terms like active and dormant are a little bit, you know, they're a little bit messy sometimes, I think. What, what do you have to be to be active as a volcano? <laughs> Erupting melt in at least the last couple of thousand years. Oh, a couple of thousand yeah. years. Yeah, a couple of thousand years, yeah. <laughs> like, I, that, under those circumstances, I consider myself to be exercise active. I was going to say, a bit, a bit different to a human definition of active, isn't it? As long as I've gone for a walk in the last thousand years, I'm really you're active. You're very active. You're very, well, you run a lot too, Jim. You're extremely active. You, you're, you're, I don't think I've erupted any time lately. Yeah. Well, no, no, I don't yeah. know about that. <laughs> uh, now, I mean, when we talk about um, volcanoes, I mean, what is the, the sort of source of of fuel for them because these these things put out a huge amount of energy and often over a protracted period of time so where is all that energy coming from and where you know what i'm talking about lava where's it all coming from well for for hawaii so obviously at the center of the earth we have the core Mm. that's incredibly hot a couple of thousands of degrees hot yep and actually that's heating the mantle which is the layer above the core and we have this heat flux or a column of heat coming up from the core that hits the crust which is really cold and that causes all this melting which which is hawaii Mm, right Um, and and it breaks through presumably yeah breaks through the crust yeah and in terms of the you know the 
the reasons for those particular locations, these are at the tectonic boundaries. Is that right? Hawaii's not. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's, that's what's going what's, on? Yeah, I mean, that's the point. It's just literally like a blowtorch of heat coming up from the mantle and just melting straight through the cold crust at the, you know, yeah. yeah. So no, no, no plate tectonic uh, boundaries for Hawaii. Yeah. Right. So does it mean that Hawaii mainly gets earthquakes due to volcanic activity absolutely yeah Yeah. the melt itself generates earthquakes yeah yeah. because when we look at there's volcanic activity Mm. obviously in new zealand but that's on a plate boundary so you get all sorts of you know quite dangerous earthquakes and you know the um was it white island recently you know erupted in 2019 yeah Um, so there's, the, but that's a very different functionality there, isn't it? Because you're at the edge. It, absolutely, yeah. And most volcanoes, I would say, are associated with plate boundary edges. Right. But yeah. Hawaii and other ocean island volcanoes are. That's very within cool. the middle of a plate. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you must be pretty well, excited. Though, and that was dreadful for a lot of people. But when the Tonga explosion happened recently, like that was enormous, right? That volcano that was, was like huge. kilometers wide. Yeah. Yeah. Just huge, and the amount of power from that eruption just. Massive, yeah. yeah. incredible stuff. Okay, so as a geochemist, you go in there and you're trying to work out where where the lava comes from. Is that, like, what the source of that volcanic activity is? Yeah, we're trying to understand how that volcano's grown. I mean, Kilauea, which is the volcano I've been looking at on mm. Hawaii, it's 300,000 years old. Right. And we're trying to understand what did it look like in its first stages of growth. I mean, obviously, now it's this huge shield volcano and those first volcanic products are covered by all those later stage melts. So, mm. you know, it's really hard to understand how did they actually grow in the beginning. So yeah. I have this image of you with a bucket and a long piece of string, <laughs> sort of, you know, going down to get some of the early stuff. But how, how do you how do you go about collecting samples from, you know, 300,000 years ago? Is, I mean, I know geological time, blink of the eye. But, yeah. um, but, you know, in terms of, you know, what's happened there and the change in the surface structure of the region and so forth, how do you go about collecting samples of that old? Well, we were actually lucky with um, Kilauea. It's got a very steep slope on mm-hmm. one of its slopes. It's very steep, so it's very unstable. And it's kind of been uh, the... It's like a debris slope. Mm. It's all falling down. Um, and so there's these big slumps in the submarine slope, and that actually exposed some of those early volcanic products. Oh, right. And so it was a little submersible unmanned vehicle, went 3,000 metres below sea level and collected some big chunks of rock and brought them up to the surface. Oh, that's did, so cool. Yeah, so. Did, you, did you drive? No. You, no. <laughs> <laughs> no like, I would love to. Yeah, I always wonder, like, when researchers, you know, because you're, you're, you're back in the lab examining these and we'll get on to how yeah. you do that, but, but, like, someone's out there driving this thing and were you at least on the boat? No. Oh, God. No. <laughs> no, is, yeah, this was actually um, an expedition run by the... Um, the US and the Japanese geological right. societies together in like the early 2000s oh, okay. and they collected loads of samples for yep. loads of universities to look yep. at. So, yeah, that's yeah. super cool stuff. So you get you get some of these um, these materials, then then what do you do? Uh, we determine their element content, their major and trace element content, we use laser ablation mm-hmm. for that. Um, I also looked at them on the synchrotron, looked at okay. the oxidation state of some of the trace elements. Yep. Um, and then I modelled how you know, different processes like fractional crystallization and partial melting to see whether I could replicate my samples element contents by those processes. Right. And that's how I found 
what Sam's eyes looking at that it's fractional crystallization. So, so yeah. what what is fractional crystallization? <laughs> yeah, I wondered. <laughs> about that. Awesome. I wondered about that. <laughs> I, so, I, yeah, I mean, normally I only learn one new thing in the show. And Jen <laughs> told me already that. Um, see, I've forgotten it now. Giant tortoises. Giant float. tortoises float. But, <laughs> oh, wow. <yeah. laughs> but now I'm going to have to learn too, which is hard for me because I'm getting older. But fractional crystallization. What, what's what's going on there? Yeah. So essentially, we have this big chamber of melt, a magma chamber, um, and then crystals form in that chamber as it cools down and those crystals fall down to the bottom of the chamber because obviously they're a bit denser they're heavier so they're fractionating out that's why oh, we call right. it fractional cool. crystallization like the way we separate oils and yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. they're okay. just sinking yep. down to the bottom yeah and then you you pull those out and, and that only happens with that particular type of temperature gradient and so forth oh, well, it's actually a very common process fractional crystallization we find at many localities around the huh. earth yeah and yeah. and knowing that relative to the other version like what does that tell us about the volcano's history um well well i guess for me what we found was that we had fractional crystallization really deep okay well that's the really unusual thing so we usually envisage that as a very shallow process because to have that big chamber for it to be Mm. stable you need a really cold rigid crust Mm -hmm. so it's like at the surface where it's colder within first top two or three kilometres. But I actually found that that process was happening at 90 kilometres depth. Wow. And at that point, the Earth's a bit more... It's still solid, but it's just a little bit more fluid, fluidy. Mm. Yeah, not 90 <laughs> kilometres, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit hotter, so it can actually flow a little bit. And so that's really surprising to find that we could have a chamber that's still, still like, like... intact. Exactly, yeah. at that depth. So that was what's really surprising for us with Hawaii. Yeah. So just just clarify for me, when, when you're at about a one to three kilometres, is that you know, tens of degrees? Is that, what sort of temperature are we at just below the ground? It's pretty low, right? I mean, it's... Yeah, I would say it's pretty low. Yeah, but at 90 kilometres? Uh, normally, I don't know, 1,400, 1,000 oh, degrees. Yeah, so toasty. Yeah, 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 for us, very toasty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. And that's, and when you get some of these, these rocks, I mean, what temperature do they start to melt at? Well, 1,400 degrees, okay, yeah, probably. Okay. I mean, yeah, the Hawaiian yeah. hotspot's about 1,700 degrees celsius so that's the the heat that's hitting the bottom of the crust and causing that melting so and with this with this sort of region this sort of pocket of magma if you like um so low does that mean that sort of volcano area is less likely to sort of be more explosive in its outputs i would say so yeah Yeah, because how's that when it's 90 kilometers deep how's it going to get to the top Mm, yeah yeah. so the tonga volcano presumably that was much closer to the surface even though it was under the water i mean you know yeah it's still yeah, yeah, yeah interesting stuff and um with with the sort of the, the sort of ongoing work, I mean, what's what's next? Are, are you going to look at the other volcanoes in that chain, or to see if they're all the same? Is that the expectation that they're all similar? Yeah, we would expect them to be all similar, and yeah, I would love to get more samples and see whether this process is present for other volcanoes in the Hawaii hotspot. Um, I think also for me, I'd be really interested to see how does the volcano evolve from this very deep magma chamber mm. to its present day state where it's actually got very shallow magma chambers, what we usually expect, one to two kilometres, and it's just got a very deep um, plumbing system or pipe for the magma coming from 90 kilometres. So I'd like to see how's it evolved from that early stage. It'd be cool if we get a submersible that goes into the magma chamber. (laughs) (laughs) If you can make that, go ahead. (laughs) So Hawaii is this amazing place, as you sort of mentioned already, with all this, you know, a series of volcanoes, and that should be partly a function of, you know, how thick that sort of that layer is where, you know, a lot of this, you know, the, the molten rocks coming to the surface. What do we know about 
other parts of the world about where we might expect, and maybe in the future, not so much now, because obviously we sort of have, we're studying now, but where we might see changes, and I guess it's, we're talking about have to, you know, hundreds of thousands of years or even millions of years from now, where you might see different areas of equivalent volcanic activity and formation of things like volcanoes. Because it just strikes me as amazing that sort of Hawaii is this incredible sort of example, mm. but why don't we see sort of other things like that popping up in, you know, similar or in, in parts of the world. So do you to sort of think about, because obviously I know the layer of the, you know, earth and so forth and the crust is, it's not uniform. There's different thicknesses and things like that. So what do we know about sort of where we might expect changes or sort of different things to emerge in the future? Is that sort of an area of research as well? It's absolutely an area of yeah. research, which makes it hard for me to answer your question. That's <laughs> actually, you know, how do hotspots in the first place we really don't really know actually at the moment it's yeah no it seems like a a really interesting question right to sort of try and grapple with absolutely yeah yeah Yeah. and i think that is i said an area of research right now yeah yeah laura i've got a slightly easier question that is (laughs) how did you manage to get your hands on such rare samples firstly and secondly now that international travel is becoming somewhat more possible again are you going to get to go to hawaii and go and look at these volcanoes (laughs) yourself well for the first question luck Okay. Really, just yeah. lucky, and it was just some thin sections that just happened to have these samples in them, wow. um, and we found them. Yeah, um, second question, I really hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> I'm gonna get there it was be- meant to go in 2020, yeah. and then obviously... <coughs> I'm going to get there off. before you, Laura, just oh. throwing that out there. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> like some samples. Yeah, 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 I'll samples. get some samples Thank from you. that <laughs> kilometre down in the ocean yeah. <laughs> while good, I'm snorkeling. Get a good snorkel, you'll be oh, right. Yeah. Free diving, you'll be fine. Have you got a good rock collection at home? <laughs> I do. A lot of thunder eggs? What's a thunder egg? Oh, you know the eggs. You know the eggs. You carve them open. They've got the crystals inside. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. A few. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I I'm think just, at that uh, point you need to find out what they're properly called, Jane, because they're clearly <laughs> not actually. I know called that. Thunder I know eggs. that. I've been collecting rocks since I was a little kid. Geodes. Geodes. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> hey, I, grew, I grew up in the Western Melbourne. You know, we call them thunder eggs. Uh, well, I learned something today, <laughs> <laughs> but not something you want to remember. Um, <laughs> that's the way it is. Yeah. Now, what's what's your your sort of the, the best rock or item you've got? I've got a Kamatiite from Australia. That? Yeah. Um, and it's a really old Archean age, like 3.6 billion years old. Mm. And it's really it was really hot when it was formed, about wow. 1,500, 1,600 degrees. Very yeah. primitive hot yeah. rock. Yeah. That's really cool. That's I mean, really nice. I, I think, yeah, you've probably got the oldest rock of anyone in the room. I think far. that's, that's <laughs> yeah, definitely, win. definitely Yeah, yeah, true. you win. Anything <laughs> over 3 billion years and you're, sort of, you're doing pretty well. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Laura, thanks so much for chatting to us. Good luck with this ongoing work, and I hope you you. do get to Hawaii soon. Um, It's apparently a spectacular place, I'm told, all the time by my in-laws, so need to get back there as soon as possible. But um, We'll get there, in my case, as soon as possible, but uh, we will, you know, never see... You know, the things I haven't seen in life, tornado, whale, volcano, there's a big list. Not a whale. I know. Why was he going to do a Victoria, mate? What yeah, are you doing? I, I just keep going on the wrong just day. Don't mess with me. Mate. Yeah. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on it. But uh, I suspect I'll see a volcano before I see a well. It's just my luck. Yeah. Anyway, Laura, thanks so much. Thank um, good me. luck with yeah. the work. And um, keep us posted if there's anything, any big volcanoes coming up in Australia. We want to know. <laughs> Folks, that was Dr. Laura Miller from Monash University, a geochemist looking at the amazing volcano chain in Hawaii. We're going to take a break for some station announcements. And when we come back, Ewan's going to be talking about some really cool stuff. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go on Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane, and with me is Dr. Ewan and Dr. Jen. And Ewan, you've got some uh, important stuff to run us through. 
I have. I want to talk about my favourite topic, I think, and that's mammals. <laughs> Me, of course. Oh. <laughs> I thought well, you said climate change. You're, you're both mammals, so I can tick that box. <laughs> <laughs> You've just been downgraded. I yeah, have, fabulous, really. the fabulous fuzzballs, as I often call them. Um, and you, you've probably often heard me talking about their plight, and I'm not really going to focus on that today because I think I've done that to death. <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah. excuse the pun. Um, <laughs> so I want to talk about something that sort of, I guess, come to light recently. And, you know, some of, it, some of our listeners, I'm sure, are, are big bird fans. And, you know, we know that The Guardian has been running Australia's favourite mm. bird for several years now. Yeah. And as is often the case on Twitter, I flippantly said, well, what about mammals? Why don't we have a, you know, Mammal of the Year competition? And we now do. Oh, really? Yes. So um, with Cosmos Magazine, uh, myself and many others have uh, basically launched a Mammal of the Year competition. And who knows who the winner will be, but that's not really the point. The point is really to raise awareness about our mammals. And so I think, you know, many of our mammals are well known to us, right? So there's koalas, there's wombats, the platypus, the echidna. You know, a, f- a few common species that we I'm, have. I'm a little worried, Dr. Jen, that he's going to throw one in here that's not a mammal and we're required to pick up on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm me- up for it, mate. You are, but I'm not. <laughs> well, that's okay. I'm, I'm here to be your buddy, Shane. I'll help. I'll, uh, I'll ask you a question, Shane. How many mammals do you think we have in Australia? Uh, 300. Well, you're not, not too far off, in fact. There's, there's more than 350 native species. Okay. So there's roughly 400 <clears throat> mammals in Australia, but that includes about 20-odd invasive mammals, so okay. deer, fox, cat, pig, etc. There's about 50 of those or so that are marine, um, but more than 350 native Australian wow. mammals. Yeah. But I think one of the things, too, is that we often think about Australia as being super diverse in terms of marsupials, and of course it is, Right. But there's three types of mammals, right? So we have the marsupials, which have pouches. Mm -hmm. We have what's called the eutherian or sometimes placental mammals. And we have... That's us, Shane. Yep. No (laughs) no pouch. (laughs) No pouch. Not last time I looked. No pouch. we have pockets. (laughs) We do. And then we have the remarkable monotremes, which are egg-laying mammals, which I just think are amazing because any mammal that can lay eggs, that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And when you talk about the platypus, they're even more impressive because not only can they lay eggs, but they're venomous Right, so you know that you're ticking a lot of boxes as a mammal. If you can say I can lay eggs and I'm venomous, that's pretty sort of yep. low low probability for a mammal. <laughs> um, but there's an extraordinary diversity of mammals in Australia that most I think people just would not know about. So, which surely is because they don't learn them in school, right? Like we learn about tigers and elephants yeah. and lions and, <clears throat> and bears and, and yeah, bears and hipp- oh hippopotamuses. But how many Australian kids learn about the diversity of Australian mammals? And I think I, I think I, I stepped in with Ewan because he was hoping when he asked me that question I'd say seven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a bear's one of them, right? Yeah. A koala bear. Yeah, yeah. Pole bear. Of course. Yeah. Koala bear. Drop bear. Drop bear. Yeah. You, you make an excellent point, Jen, about the fact that I think, yeah, most kids could quite confidently point at a tiger, at an elephant, at a hippopotamus, you know, many things. And, in fact, most people could often name extinct animals as well. So Mm. things like the dodo. If I asked you to reel off all the extinct mammals, I think most people would probably struggle, Mm. other than maybe the really well-known ones like the thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger. And there's kids, kids, I have to say, like can probably name in excess of 20 dinosaurs, many kids. And another one which I'm actually quite happy about, but kids can often name many sharks as well, which I actually think is great. That they can they can name so many sharks, but but you're right. You know they don't learn the names and probably don't even know what they look like. Mm. Some of these mammals. And in terms of names, what about if I said to you, what's a Mulgara or a Chudich or a Kulta 
or a Booty or a Woylie or a Ichari or a Diang or a Dibbler. Excuse me, or a Bobuck. Or a Bobuck. Sorry. That's the animal I did my PhD on, Shane, so I have a vested See, interest. And I know that one because of you, <laughs> yeah. but the other, all that other stuff that Ewan was talking about? So these are all head. the wonderful Indigenous names, which yeah. of course have been part of First Nations people culture for 60, 70,000 plus years, yeah. right? Um, and some species, of course, have multiple names because they span different nations' areas because mm. of the distributions mm. that some of these species have. So again, I think, you know, a part of the sort of culture and understanding of mammals that a lot of Australians, unfortunately, don't have a connection with but would be wonderful to see communicated um you know across society really but getting back to the diversity of our mammals you know we have 80 plus species of bat we have uh more than 60 species of rodent and rodents i think you just don't get nearly the love that they deserve so you know a lot of people living particularly living in cities but even in the regions would be sort of bemoaning, you know, house mice invading their house or black rats or brown rats kind of scurrying around their compost heap and causing trouble. But we have all these remarkable native Australian rodents, you know, so the black-footed tree rat, which is this beautiful big um, rat, almost sort of possum size, that lives in northern Australia, big um, sort of um, fluffy black feet, beautiful-looking animal. One of my favourites, the Eastern Pebble Mound Mouse. So a good friend of mine, uh, Fred Ford, he did his PhD on this species up in northern Australia. And the cool thing about these mice, and you need to absolutely Google this, so do do the Adam Band and Google it. (laughs) These tiny little mice that are roughly the size of a house mouse, Mm -hmm. they fastidiously collect little pebbles all almost the same size. So imagine you're this little mouse and you're living out in, in the environment somewhere in a woodland. You're scurrying around trying to find all these pebbles in the environment, but they have to be just right. <laughs> and they stack these big mounds across their burrow entrance, which is basically a defensive strategy. So they put these big mounds of pebbles and they have a tiny little entrance. And when they go inside, they then backfill it with pebbles to block it off. So if you're a snake and you're cruising around trying to find a nice little tasty meal of mouse, and you come across all these pebbles, you can't get in. Hmm. And so it was remarkable to watch, you know, so you can move the pebbles away, and a bit like a bowerbird, if anyone knows bowerbirds, if you um, mess with a bowerbird's bower, they're OCD, they will come back and they'll make it perfect. They'll absolutely fix it up, and and the, the mice are the same. So... You know, and then we have mice that hop. So we have mm, hopping, mice hopping mice that look like kangaroos in the sense of the way they move. So, you know, dusky hopping mice and Mitchell's hopping mouse. We have just extraordinary diversity in mammals that most people don't know about, all the dasyurid marsupials. So we have one of the smallest marsupials in the world called um, the long-tailed planigale, which is roughly between, I think it's four and six grams as an adult. Well. Yeah. It's tiny. It is tiny. It's like a chocolate-coated sultana. It, it is absolutely <laughs> tiny. And they have, an they have flat little heads. Um, and so, and the reason they have flat little heads is they live between the cracks in clay soils, which expand and contract. So when it gets wet, the soil expands. When it dries out, it forms cracks as, the, as it sort of contracts. And they live in those cracks um, wow. in these black soil areas, and they have to be flat <laughs> to, 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 to live inside in. yeah. there. So... Uh, and then we have, of course, all the possums and gliders, you know, so we have um, some species that people wouldn't know. Brush-tailed possum, of course, yep. runs across your reef, makes a ruckus at night. But then we have uh, things like striped possums that live in the rainforest of North Queensland. We have feather-tailed gliders, tiny little, again, animals that would fit in the palm of your hand that have these extraordinary feather-like tails. Mm. Um, honey possums that live in Western Australia, um, I'm pretty sure the smallest um, completely um, nectar-dependent mammal in the world um, that 
feeds and things like banksias and so forth. Greater gliders. Um, I don't know if you haven't seen a greater glider yet. It's the most incongruous-looking, um, fluffy mammal you've ever seen. So, you know, a lot of our mammals are fluffy, but these are yep. extraordinarily fluffy. They have these <laughs> big, round ears that look like they've been sewn on, basically, <laughs> and these huge, long tails, and they can glide up to 100 metres mm. between trees. Amazing. And some of them have up to 12 to 20 hollows that they need, you know, in an environment. So they have all these different homes that they live in. So... You know, this kind of comp- competition, if you like, it's not so much about who wins, but it's really trying to raise awareness mm. about, you know, this extraordinary diversity of mammals that we have in Australia that most people would just not know about. And I think part of that, of course, is that a lot of these mammals are nocturnal. Mm. Yep. So yep. you just don't see them, out of sight, yep. out of mind. Um, yep. The vast majority of our mammals, yeah, you just don't see them during the day. There are exceptions. The wonderful echidna, very active during the day. There's also another mammal that's quite active during the day. It's called the hipsy, hipsy primdon. It's this um, type of macropod. So, again, macropods is basically a scientific fancy name for Bigfoot, right? right. So macropod being foot. Um, and that includes kangaroos, wallabies, potaroos, betongs they're all in that group Uh, and the hipsy lives in the rainforest and it scurries around grabbing fruits and seeds and it's basically a gardener it caches them in different spots and then of course some of those actually sprout (laughs) up up. yeah um so extraordinary little mammal yeah so yeah we have to ask you keep saying it doesn't matter who wins but we have to know who who, who's going to get your vote you know as a mammalogist who are you going to vote for yeah it's it's a great question and i have to say with this sort of um competition that's been open at the moment we're in the nomination phase so they're calling for people to say i want this to be in the sort of the pool of species yeah and then mid-june the actual you know competition begins right um, look, I'm going to have to obviously put a vote in for the dingo because people would yeah. know that I've worked on the dingo for quite a long time and it's a species that is, is really um, – it, it evokes a lot of emotion, right? Some people say it's not native at all. Some people say it is native. Some people, of course, are, are concerned about the impact it causes on livestock grazing and so forth. So it's definitely a controversial species. Mm. Um, the striped possum is mm. definitely up there for me. Um, the spotted cuscus. Yes. Uh, another type of po- uh, possum that lives in, in, in northern Australia. And I'm probably going to have to put a vote in um, for my PhD species, the Antilopine wallaroo. And people will say, what's a wallaroo? You know, and a wallaroo is basically um, a, a smaller version in terms of height of a kangaroo, generally a bit stockier build, but still quite a large animal. So that they would be probably on my list. But what about you, Jen? I mean, who are you going to put on the list? Uh, I think Shane and I are going to claim that we're not going to tell anyone, right? We're well, I would say, for me, I mean, I won't get the exact species, uh, <laughs> but I would say that anything that can glide over 100 metres and yeah. say, F you birds, I don't, I don't need to be a bird. I've pretty much got it yeah. covered. I think that's incredible. Greater gliders going to get a lot of love. Yeah. I can tell you that yeah. now. I, I just find that's a, an area of evolution where they've gone in that direction and been able to move yep. through the sky in a way that's incredible and gets them away from predators. Yep. Um, that that's phenomenal. Just yep. you know, so that's where I'll be looking. Anyway. Thank you, uh, Dr. Ewan. Great Pleasure. to hear about all these and great to hear these competitions coming up because the, yep. the bird version gets a lot of, uh, lot of press and does really well. So it's good to see that people will be learning a yeah, lot it's more all about, about mammals. mammals now. And hopefully, it's all about the mammals. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe the bird thing's still on. We're going to hand over to Eat It. Thanks, Dr. Jen. Thanks, Dr. Ewan. Thanks to all our guests. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a wonderful Sunday. And hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. 
Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.